Chapter 5 of Mystery of the Ambush in India by Andy Adams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Tomlinson, London. Chapter 5 Danger at Dawn. Right then, Biff's one hope was that he and his two companions could lose themselves in another and bigger crowd and thus dodge the disguised stranger who was so intent upon following them. They couldn't have chosen a better place than the Howrah station. It seemed five times bigger than any other railway station Biff had ever seen, and it contained ten times as many people. The afternoon had reached its peak of stifling heat, so they had come in here and sprawled over the acres of cool marble floors in preference to the Calcutta sidewalks. The boys had to step around prostrate bodies or clamber over them, as did hundreds of other travellers who were thronging the great depot. Practically all of those travellers were natives, and many of them were carrying huge bundles that contained most of their worldly possessions. Chandra explained that many of Calcutta's three million citizens were constantly on the move due to lack of food or jobs, but that as fast as they left town, others poured in to replace them. He added that the population was still shifting between India and Pakistan, which accounted for more travel, particularly since the East Pakistan border was so near Calcutta. He also mentioned that many were pilgrims bound for Benares and other places holy to Hindu cults. While the boys picked their way through the immense station, Chandra pointed out examples of each group. He also called attention to occasional Europeans and well-dressed Indians, including Hindus of high caste. Those few, declared Chandra, go first or second class. Always some talk English and ask too much about everybody's business. I know because I've gone second class with Jinnah Jad, so we will go third class and talk just to each other. That satisfied Biff and Kamuka. It wasn't a matter of saving money, for they had pooled their cash and had more than enough to travel in luxury, with Chandra included. But getting to New Delhi unnoticed was essential, and the train trip, which required more than 24 hours, was the sort that promised complications, so the more they avoided, the better. Chandra had a bright idea on that score too. Biff gave him enough money to buy three third-class tickets, but when Chandra rejoined the other boys, he returned half the cash. I only buy tickets halfway, he stated, so nobody will know we are going to New Delhi. They will think maybe we are going to Benares or Allahabad. But instead we will go on to a little village where my uncle lives and start again from there. You're the boss of this expedition, Chandra, Biff assured him. Anything that will cover our trail is a good idea. Breaking the trip also seemed a good idea when Biff saw the accommodations that the third-class carriages offered. Biff had been afraid that he might be noticed on the station platform the way he had been on the bus, but that worry soon was over. The platform was thicker with milling humanity than the station itself. People would have been pushed onto the track if the train hadn't been there to receive them. Many were crowding into first- and second-class compartments, only to be pushed out and ordered back to where they belonged, in third class. Amid the commotion, Chandra found one third-class compartment that looked full, but wasn't because the occupants had simply spread their luggage in a haphazard way. Chandra began piling them together like so many bundles of wash, until he had made room for all three boys, including their own luggage. 
The seats in the compartment were little better than benches, but Biff gladly drew himself into the deepest and most uncomfortable corner rather than be observed too closely when members of the train crew closed the doors, for some of them were genuine Sikhs who might have seen through his thin disguise. The platforms were still crowded when the train pulled out, as many people had come to the station simply to see the others off. Then the train was rolling into the open country, what little Biff could see of it. The rustle of wheels mixed with the swells of dust and blended with the smell of garlic and spices, for everyone was bringing out native food, bowls of rice, bananas and other fruit, Biff's appetite was suddenly roused. Think of all that rice Jinnajad wasted, Biff said to Kamuka, when he did that trick. I could eat some of it now. He didn't waste it, reminded Kamuka. He put it in our pockets, remember? We should have kept it. Say, that was a neat trick, Biff turned to Chandra. How did Jinnajad work that part of it, or don't you know? Chandra grinned broadly. That is one trick I do know, he declared. Remember when I went through the crowd, tapping people's pockets, asking for rupees, like this? He tapped Biff's pocket, then Kamuka's, and they both nodded. While I do that, Chandra went on, I use my other hand to put rice in other pockets, so later... The people find it there. So that was it. Almost instinctively, Viff thrust his hand in his other pocket, then brought it out in amazement with a pair of candy bars. Kamuka, reaching into his own pocket, found himself staring at a handful of loose peanuts. You must have bought these when you went for the ticket, said Biff to Chandra, and then you slipped them into our pockets while you were telling us how you did it. Candy for me, peanuts for Kamuka. And now you have peanuts too, put in Chandra, in the pocket where you keep the big ruby. Again, Chandra was right, and Biff's amazement at the Indian boy's skill was complete. They ate their chocolate bars and peanuts along with some fruit that Chandra had also brought them. Then, when the other passengers were no longer noticing them, Chandra remarked, Remember how the big man with the fake beard got tangled in the crowd when we were leaving the bus? Biff and Kamuka nodded. I do that too, declared Chandra proudly. I push one person like this, he nudged Biff forward, and another like that, he gave Kamuka a backward push, and pretty soon all are in each other's way. Biff smiled at that too. Then he turned solemn. We've been watched, he declared, and that's for sure. So let's be still more careful from now on. At various stops, the train disgorged many passengers who filled up water jars that they had brought along and returned to the train before it started. Biff and Kamuka let Chandra handle that job for their party rather than show themselves on station platforms. Occasionally, though, Kamuka waved from the compartment window to fruit sellers who also supplied milk and soft drinks. At such stops, first- and second-class passengers went ahead to the dining car or had attendants bring choice dishes to their compartments, but third-class travellers didn't rate such service. It was turning dark when the train reached the great coal fields in western Bengal. That part of the trip interested Biff most because of the mining activity, but there was little to be seen, and soon, despite the rattle and jouncing of the train and the discomfort of the stuffy corner, Biff began dozing off. Once, Chandra nudged him and whispered, "'Watch your turban. 
keep it on straight, and Biff woke sufficiently to realize that he had one ear out of the cumbersome headgear. He worked it into place, saw Chandra nod approval, and then went back to sleep. Again, Chandra woke both Biff and Kamuka, who was sleeping too, telling them, Watch out now. New passengers coming on board. Don't let them look at you too close. So Biff and Kamuka kept their heads together and engaged in low conversation until the new passengers gave up looking at them and fell asleep themselves. That gave Biff and Kamuka the right to do the same. This time, Biff's sleep was sound, undisturbed by the joltings of the train or the blare of the locomotive whistle as it rushed on through the thick night. It was a dream that wakened Biff. He imagined that he was clutching the big ruby, while hands were trying to snatch it from him. He was confronted by bearded Sikhs, and as he clawed wildly at their faces, their beards came away, until he saw only one smooth face and opened his eyes to find that the dream, in a sense, was real. Biff was clutching the bag that contained the ruby, but his hand was deep in his jacket pocket. The hands that were clutching him were Chandra's, shaking him awake, and the smooth face, too, was Chandra's. Quickly, the Indian boy put his finger to his lips for silence. The train was standing still. All was silent in the compartment except for the snores of other passengers. The lights looked dimmer than before because it was no longer pitch dark outside. Faint streaks of dawn were reddening the sky beyond the low-lying hills. The compartment at last seemed slightly cool. Biff risked a whisper. Where are we? At an engine-changing station, Chandra whispered back. Our own is farther on, but we cannot wait until then. He gestured towards Kamuka, who was still asleep. Between them, Biff and Chandra shook Kamuka and roused him instantly. Like a team, the three boys gathered their packs and stepped carefully past the knees and over the legs of sleeping passengers. Moments later, they were on a weather-beaten platform alongside the long, silent train. A few dozen human figures were stretched on the station platform, with white sheets of cloth drawn completely over their motionless forms, like shrouds. "'Railroad workers mostly,' whispered Chandra, "'waiting for the next shift. "'No one gets off or on here, at least not often.' "'But why are they covered over?' asked Biff, "'impressed by the weird appearance of the figures. "'Because the night was cool for them,' replied Chandra, "'but not too cool for the insects. "'Soon now the covering over their heads "'will keep the sun from waking them.' "'The boys stole across the platform "'past the square-shaped station "'where more such figures lay asleep. "'Kamuka, looking back at the train, "'put the next query. "'But why did we get off here?' Too many passengers changed places in the night, replied Chandra. I saw new faces. Then later I recognized some of the old again. If we had gotten off at a crowded station, we could easily have been followed. Here, no one else can leave the train without our seeing them. Chandra was right. The boys had reached a road that led at an angle from the tracks. Looking back, they could see the full length of the brightly colored train as they continued on their way. In the gathering daylight, their keen eyes would surely note any motion on the steps of any of the cars. Ahead, the road led through a grove of trees. Once there, the boys themselves would be out of sight. There was just one spot the boys' roving eyes did not cover. That was the portion of the platform obscured by the squatty station. There, three white shrouded shapes were rising like ghosts in the grey dawn. 
They dropped away their sleeping sacks, revealing limber figures clad in dark clothes that blended with the background of the station wall, as well as the trees beyond. One man gave an order in the native dialect, and like human bloodhounds, the stealthy trio stalked off along the very road that the three boys had taken. End of chapter 5 Recording by Peter Tomlinson, London